0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 12th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, this week broadcasting again from Phoenix, where it's, uh, I guess, officially cooled down. But since I have been in a couple of colder climes in the interim, I'll say that, yeah, it's still pretty warm in Phoenix, shall we say, even when we have our cold days. So we're not gonna be that upset by it. But we got a couple of things this week, which is interesting. Wasn't exactly a whole lot of volume this week and what went on. But was it? What was interesting though, is we had a couple of important things happen. And one of the key ones that came out actually at the end of the prior week, uh, and then we've had the second part follow up at the beginning of this week, was the release of a second set of draft instructions for schedules K2 and K3, for forms 1065 and 1120S. And as we'll discuss, there have been some major changes made to the domestic filing exception. Uh, Changes that probably will make you happier, maybe not totally thrilled uh, in the way you might be otherwise, but certainly better than the original set we got. And then the IRS this week finally did something with an issue that's been hanging around since earlier this year, when they lost cases in the Sixth Circuit and then later lost a case in the tax court regarding issues with the Administrative Procedures Act and Internal Revenue Code Section 6707 Cap A. That deals with the concept of the penalties for failing to disclose as the transactions, key question being how the IRS goes about adding transactions to that list. Uh, Essentially on now at both the Sixth Circuit and on a published tax court opinion, the IRS has lost where the courts have found that they needed to go through a formal notice and comment period uh, before adding transactions to the list. Uh, The IRS this week decided to, okay, we're still not officially admitting that we're wrong, but we are going to go ahead and go through a formal notice and comment period, at least for one, which from the actions we've seen recently or the number of filings we've seen the IRS going after this, is a major area for them. We talk about syndicated conservation easements. Uh, We'll take a look at that. So we'll discuss both what those cases mean, what in the World's Administrative Procedures Act, and then why this may not end up being a whole whole lot of anything on these two issues unless you're before the courts right now, where the IRS right now has you uh, and is attempting to collect this penalty. But while it may not change much in the future, by this time next year, we will probably, my guess is, those syndicated conservation easement transactions will be right back as listed transactions, which you will have to file disclosures for. And if you fail to do so, the penalties will still start coming, but we'll talk a bit about that. So let's talk about the brand new draft schedules, K2 and K3. Um, what happened here was the new rules and they were it released, like I said, on December the 2nd is the date shown on the draft instructions. And we also have another set we'll talk about briefly of draft instructions for the uh, 10-11-20S, which effectively comes to the same conclusion. Now, what this means is that we have some key issues involved. We're going to change the domestic filing exception at this point. And that's going to be the key thing we're going to be looking at here. What happened with the domestic filing exception that we saw on this particular issue? Now, as I said, what ended up happening was, if you remember previously for domestic filing exceptions, you had to have only partners of a certain type. You had to have, in essence, you had to issue a, you know, basically you had to have no foreign activities or, you know, relatively minor ones. You then had to issue a notice by January 15th to all of your equity holders. Telling them that you weren't going to give them a schedule K3 unless they requested it. Then you were to sit back and watch through February 15th. And if by February 15th, nobody had said, I need a K3, then you would not be required to file either schedules K2 or K3 with your return. And if somebody did say they needed it, you'd have to file a K3 information with the return for all the partners who said they needed the data but you wouldn't have to fill in any part of schedule k2 other than those that you've been told were required by these other partners so we're going to make a few changes here to see how this works now previously the allowed partners and remember s corporations didn't have this thing but previously we could have been allowed to have a u.s citizen a resident alien a u.s domestic trust either you know grantor or regular old non-grantor trust, or you could have had a US estate, a domestic estate. But any other type of partner would require you to fail this test, in which case then we're back to the standard instructions that you have to assume everybody needs all the things on schedule K2, K3, unless you have clear information that partners don't need it. So generally that would mean you end up having to do schedules, You had to do part two and part three of Schedule K2 and K3 for every partner in most cases. Now, we did add two new partners though to that list. They now have said if one of your partners is a single, is a one-shareholder S-Corporation, S-Corporation with only a single shareholder, that will not disqualify. Now note, if you have more than one shareholder, you're now out and disqualified. So that still doesn't count. So, and any C corporation would disqualify you. And obviously, partnerships still disqualify. You. The other category they added was they did say that it would count if you had a single member LLC, disregard entity that is deemed owned by a party that's otherwise in that list. So they'll go ahead and they'll count the disregard entities, look to the real owner, and then see if that's somebody who's qualified. So if your single member LLC is owned by, A one person S corporation, great. You can still have that as your, that can be your partner. Also is owned by a single individual. That would be fine. Owned by a domestic decedent's estate. Again, all of those fine issues that we have. Now, the other issue that changed, we didn't make any changes to the no foreign activities rule or the limited foreign activities. Remember that, that said that essentially we could have up to $300 of foreign taxes. Uh, that we needed to pass out that was credible to our shareholders or to our partners as long as all of that was reported to us on a 1099 div 1099 int a schedule k1 from a trust or a schedule k3 from an s corporation or partnership all of our income was foreign tax credit passive income which as i've mentioned before is not the same as 469 passive income you know so keep that straight right? Essentially. Now, th- those rules stay the same. We don't have a problem. The big change is gonna come with disclosure to partners. We still have to tell our partners they're not gonna get a K3 from us unless they request it. But instead of requiring you to send a notice out separately with a separate statement issued on January the 15th, no later than January the 15th, which is two months before the due date of the return, you now can basically make that disclosures to partners right up until the day you up to the day you give them the K1. And in fact, you can also make it an attachment to the K1 itself. So, basically, previously you had to send out a separate letter. And while I know there are some partners that will ignore anything you send them, there are more who will read a letter from the partnership coming out of the blue then they'll pay a whole lot of attention to the K-1 if they'll just hand to their tax person to do whatever with. Um, so a lot of people had decided that, that that notice to the partners could be a real nightmare because you're going to have to explain to every partner what it is you just said, why they would want a K-3. And by the time you decided all the time the partnership was going to waste or probably the CPA who it was working with the partnership because the partner's just going to send the you know, the managing partners are going to send the people off to the CPA to explain what the heck this means. Uh, it would be simpler to just prepare the form. I heard that from a lot of uh, different CPAs who decided the easiest approach was just to prepare it. Now, with this one, maybe not as big a deal. It'll be on the K1. Like it or not, that's probably going to be ignored by most of the partners. So that's it. And the other weird thing is we well, might think how 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 in the world can we get it one, you know, issue it with the K1? Does that mean we changed the one month rule in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, we did. But yeah, we did. Yeah, we didn't. It was kind of interesting. The one month rule, the one month date is still in the regulations, and the one month date applies as revised for both the uh, question for domestic filing exception and for the ability to try to get a Form 1116 clearance out or saying, you know, all the partners give us notice they don't need Form 1116. They won't need to file it to get the credit. They qualify for the exception or they simply have no credible foreign taxes. Uh, that exception is in the, you know, is it's going to be the same one month date. But it will now be instead of one month before the unextended due date, it's going to be one month before the form 1065 is filed. So February 15th no longer becomes a key date. Okay. Now, the other thing to note about this is we're not required to tell them about the fact we're not going to issue K3 and they have the right to ask for one from us until we issue the K1s. Which means that unless you have a partner that figures out on his or her own that they need to tell you, hey, I need a K3, uh, you'll basically never have to send a K2 and K3 with the 1065. Now, as the rule was before, if somebody notifies you after the one month date, then you still have to provide that person with the K3 information or basically fill in a K3 for them with the information they need. However, as was noted, uh, that, you know, we don't need to send that K3 to the IRS. So it won't go with the tax return and we just need to provide it to that one person. So again, that works. Now, if your partner is a bit paranoid and your partner understands what that means, the partner may prove to be cooperative as well and hold off saying, I need a K-3 until after you've mailed it in. Because, of course, they don't want the government knowing anything the government should know. So, or doesn't have to. And this would be a way to avoid providing that data to the IRS directly. Okay, whatever. That that also would work. But I think the big advantage here is we don't have that, put that out there and then wait a month, you know, put a separate notice out. Wait a month for people to respond to that notice and only then move forward. Okay, that'll be the key issue here. It also, as I said, if you don't qualify for the exception, most likely where this is gonna work where you won't qualify for the exception, but the 1116 exception could still work for you where every partner by the one month date notifies you they're not required to file the form 1116. If you had credible foreign taxes in the partnership of more than $300, but because we're gonna divide that, let's say $500 of tax credit, among five partners and let's say they're all even each get a hundred dollars it's very possible all of them will qualify for the exception to be able to just report the foreign tax credit for the foreign taxes on schedule three line one and just claim the full amount without worrying about the limitation on it well that's going to be the most likely scenario where you'll do that yes you'll need to get these documents from them at least one month before the 1065 is filed or i like what they also say or have other information about why they don't need it which kind of says i'm not sure what the one month date matters then if i get this letter if i get this you know statement from them they don't need it and it's 2 days before i'm going to file i do seem to have at the time of filing information about why you know about the fact that the partners don't need this but nevertheless we'll accept and go along with how that looks for now now as was true before If no partner responds before the one month date and you're not even going to probably ask them before the date you file. So it's highly unlikely unless you just have somebody that, you know, is, you know, is deep into tax and somehow somehow figures out I better ask for a K3 just in case they're, you know, they're planning not to issue one uh, because I desperately want that K3 data going to the IRS. I'm sure you have many clients like that, but you never know. Maybe you'll have somebody. Uh, we're probably not going to get any, but again, no partner response for the one month date, no K2s or K3s with the return. So again, you can finalize the partnership return with no K2s or K3s. You can put the notice on the K1 and, you know, basically you're fine with that. Um, if a partner responds, right, before the one month date, then the K2 and K3 with the areas that partner needs to go with the return. If they respond after the one month date, again, they still get a K-3, you've got to give it to them within one month of the date they ask or if later the day the 1065 is filed. Um, you know, so again, and the only way that second one seems to work is if you some reason sent out a notice ahead of time or you've got that partner that just likes to be a pain and wants everything done correctly and thinks if the IRS doesn't know about this, there'll be problems on his return. Yeah, okay, whatever. You know, We'll, we'll deal with that guy as we have to now on monday you know basically december 6th or i should say december 5th is the date of the draft which is monday tuesday was when it actually got post our site we got s corporation instructions revised second revision that followed with similar changes now i know there was at least one notice from a tax soft, from a tax news vendor uh, that that indicated that the s corp rules weren't changed at all but you should be aware that vendor has issued since that time a corrected email that says no, it was it was changed. And yeah, I was a little confused when I saw that. I was going, it's not changed. I'm pretty sure it was. You know, so I went back and reread to make sure I didn't download something wrong or see something wrong. No, it does. The S Corporation has very similar changes. You can again send the notice that we're not going to send a K3 uh, with the K1 for the S Corporation when you file the return. The one-month date is now goes to one month. It is one month before, not one more, but one month before, filing the 1120S. says one more on the screen if you're listening to the audio. And the same rules apply about when a notice, who gives notices before or after the one month date. About if it's before the one month date, K2 goes with the 1120S when we file with the IRS. And a K3 with that data is going to go in as well for all partners that have requested that data. And if it's after the one month date, then you only provide the K3 to the requesting partner. So a bit simpler. Now, are we going to get another set of draft regulations? It's always possible there'll be another set of draft, re- uh, not draft regulations, draft instructions. Anything's possible, but I have a feeling that there's a very, very, very good chance that these will get finalized. You know, I know I think at this point, I'm not sure the IRS is going to give us much more. I think they put the drafts out though, because I suspect. there is a formal process it's got to clear before the regs can become final so what they're actually telling us is not the regs but the uh, instructions can become final with a review process inside the irs so i think the reality is what they're telling us is here they are here's how it's going to work as i said before i can't imagine the service putting out final instructions or another draft that is less generous than this one I think they're going to have to at least let people go this route. So my guess is you're probably fairly safe to start planning that this is how the K1, K2 stuff will be done. So if you're planning these big January, January 15th uh, letters or emails, don't worry about that. I wouldn't be surprised here, tax software vendors end up just having a box somewhere you can check that says we're not going to do, you know, we're not sending K3s unless, and, and that'll just go on every K1. Uh, be an attachment a statement attached to the back of it the other thing i you should note though is that it does appear this year still wanting to see the real numbers and still wanting to see exactly how it works but it does appear that software vendors are likely to better support k2 and k3 this year than they have in the past by that i mean you should be able to flag let's say a u.s located rental it's rental only in the u.s Those were the ones that drove us batty last year because that little partnership did nothing outside the U.S. Still had to do K2, K3 to to basically tell us about gross income, break down the gross income, break down the expenses, the interest, where the assets, what the assets values were, etc. All of that had to be broken out. And what was really bad about it was it was all U.S. Everything was U.S. The data was really already been input in the return, but the software vendors didn't have any way to flag it and say that particular rental it's in the U S the properties in the U S you know, and the, you know, and yes, you can use the average value from the appreciation schedule to pick that up. It appears this year we're seeing some of the software vendors will allow you to flag that as U S only. Again, I want to see it. I've been told it works that way in LACERT. It seems like from what I've read from what, um, uh, Thompson Reuters has said about ultra tax this year that it should work there. But again, but I haven't actually run down and had time to run down and confirm yet that that's actually working in ultra tax. And since I don't use LACERT, I can't say for sure there. But it certainly seems like the sort of thing the vendors should be doing this year. So we'll hope for the best. Next up, we have an IRS announcement and proposed regs. Announcement 202228 28 that came out on December the 6th. The IRS responded to two, to basically what are, well, two losses in court on a particular issue, actually three. Uh, one at a district court, one at the U.S. Tax Court with a, you know, published decision and one in the Sixth Circuit. And the problem became how the IRS adds notices to listed transactions. And this is where the issue comes. Now, if you remember section 6707A has a penalty equal to 75% of you know, the amount of tax benefit being claimed on the return. If you have an effect reported on the return of a tax, of what's basically a listed transaction, and you fail to file the proper disclosure form with your return disclosing that transaction. You have to have a disclosure form for every return impacted by it. And if the item became listed after the return was filed, you still have to file a revised form or file a revised return and a disclosure statement. As long as the statute of limitations was still open on that year's return or carry back or whatever it might be at the time the IRS added this to the list of transaction list. Now the cases the IRS lost was the case of man construction versus United States. That case primarily dealt with issues, uh, related to what was going to be an employee benefit plan with life insurance that the IRS had identified as a listed transaction. Uh, the sixth circuit again said you didn't go through proper procedures. Therefore it's not, it's not been properly added to the list of transaction list. Therefore, there can't be a listed transaction penalty on this failing to disclose this transaction. Uh, that that was bad enough when it came down as far as the service was concerned, but later in the year, more significantly from a practical standpoint for the service, was U.S. Tax Court in a published decision, and it was not unanimous, but it was a good chunk, shall we say, a very very. It wasn't exactly a close vote, but it was not unanimous in the case of green valley investors llc versus commissioner that case involved a syndicated conservation easement transaction and again the fight there was whether the irs you know basically did the irs not properly add that syndicated conservation easement to the list of listed transactions meaning they didn't go through the proper procedures now i want to point out something before we go any further in neither case did the court decide that these items, that the transactions themselves could not be added as listed transactions. They merely decided the IRS didn't go through the proper procedures to do so. So, you know, that's very different. And they also didn't decide in either of these cases whether the taxpayers will actually prevail for the tax treatment in question on the merits. That was also not decided in either of these cases. These cases simply are looking at right now the penalty that would apply simply for not disclosing. And under the 6707 cap A, if it's a listed transaction, the penalty applies and the IRS has no right to waive it. So that's kind of interesting. Now, we also had a similar result in the case of CIC services, LLC versus United States, which was a U.S. district court opinion from the district court of Tennessee, uh, which came out this year. Now, that case is interesting, not so much because, again, it's a district court and, you know, it holding that a transaction wasn't properly handled as listed is probably not a big deal since it's only that district court. But that case was on remand from the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is really what got a lot of this started. Uh, The IRS had argued for a while that under the Administrative Procedures Act, or not the Administrative Administrative Procedures Act, under the the Anti-Injunction Act, Another act that, and in this was the case with promoters who have to maintain lists or get nailed with big penalties. And theoretically, those in a transaction would have the similar problem of not, you know, reporting, you know, either report it or risk these huge penalties. The IRS position had been because the anti-adjunction act, which generally prevents taxpayers who don't have an actual complaint with the service from challenging a tax ruling. Uh, you know, be unless there was an actual assessment in front of them. You know, the IRS had said, well, that applies to this. So you guys who are, you know, promoters, you know, if you know, uh, basically, you either have to not keep the list, and then wait for us to find you, and then when they, when you when we find you, then you can raise the question about whether we properly added or not. But until then, you can't. Uh, same thing for taxpayers. Obviously, that would make uh, it's very difficult to get this to court because who wants to risk what are draconian penalties, you know, just to hopefully have a chance to challenge the service, knowing that if you do rig something where, let's say, it wouldn't cost you much to challenge it, you know, it wouldn't be that big a deal. Uh, the problem is that the service has a right to just, you know, decide not not to take you to court, you know, j- just to concede before we get started. So yeah, you know, just concede and settle and pay off and you no longer have a claim. So it makes it a problem. Well, what the Supreme Court ruled was in a 9-0 decision was that no IRS, you cannot use the uh, Anti-Injunction Act to prevent challenges to a regulation like this. This is not a generic tax regulation. You know, it is a basically more of a penalizing and regulatory type, more traditional regulatory type action so, nope, it's not really a tax and it should be open to challenge without somebody having to risk actually, you know, risk actually violating this thing. Uh, they they could challenge it that it was you know, overly burdensome regulation, wasn't properly done, et cetera, et cetera. That's all within what they could do. And CIC services pretty much helped set up Man construction and Green Valley investors. Now, what the courts found in this case, and it was true for You know, we're going to talk about this. They found that the IRS failed to follow the notice and comments requirements of the Administrative Procedures Act. The Administrative Procedures Act is a provision added by Congress to the law. And one of the things which it requires in the APA at Title Title V, United States Code, Section 553, is essentially that there has to be a notice of proposed rulemaking published in the Federal Register uh, for any new you know, kind of ruling or any new kind of uh, provision, which would be a statement of the time, place, and nature of the public rulemaking proceedings, a reference to legal authority, neither the terms or substance of the proposed rules for a description. Now, there are some exceptions here in this section. It does not apply, which is probably key here, uh, to interpretive rules, general statements of policy, or rules of agency, organization, procedure, or practice. The IRS, in this case, tried to argue a couple of ways through this. Now, the other thing to note is that Section 6707A says that the term listed transaction means a reportable transaction, which is substantially the same as or substantially similar to a transaction specifically identified by the secretary, meaning the IRS, as a tax avoidance transaction for the purpose of Section 6011. And 6011 was enacted quite a bit earlier and that particular rule deal, dealt with this concept of a listed transaction. And in that case, it only said the statute stayed open if you didn't notify the service about the listed transactions. So the IRS could challenge it into the future if they weren't properly apprised of the issue. The key question becomes here: Is the does the Administrative Procedures Act cover the secretary specifically identifying a transaction as a tax avoidance transaction. Now the IRS tried to argue two different ways that nope, you know, no, 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 we're we're not, it does, it doesn't affect us. The first thing, and by the way, the courts rejected both of these. They argued first that the very nature of 6707A, where they just identify these transactions, that's not really making a rule. They're saying, or to the extent it is, Congress specifically accepted it, so they didn't say we had to issue rules. They just said we had to identify them. And once we identify them, then they get added in as a listed transaction. The other argument they tried, which I think had even less uh, backing, is that this was simply an interpretation, that they were just interpreting law. Okay, the courts skipped both. First thing they pointed out was when the Administrative Procedures Act was passed, They made it very clear that the rules I mentioned apply unless Congress clearly indicates they don't to some new legislation they pass. And both the tax court and the Sixth Circuit found that that paragraph I mentioned, that way I describe it in 6707A, uh, cap A, B, doesn't have any sort of thing that comes close to explicitly overriding the Administrative Procedures Act. Never mentions it, never states any of that stuff. They're saying, so by default, if this is not an interpretive regulation or interpretive rule, then you got to file the notes and comments. And they said, it seems textbook that this is not a interpretation, but it's more of a legislative action because nothing gets penalized. You're determining, in essence, what gets penalized. You know, just like Congress could have obviously said, list of transactions are and listed 32 different transactions. But rather than do that, they've given it now the IRS through this program. But that means because they are the agency and not the Congress, uh, they have to go through the notice and comment period. So that was going to be part of it. Now, this announcement tells us that the IRS is still going to challenge on the syndicated conservation easements, this issue outside the Sixth Circuit. What that means is that there probably is circuit the IRS has already identified that they would like, or at least circuits, where they would like to bring a challenge believing that they could get a finding in favor of themselves. And they're not going to tip their hand yet saying, yeah, you know, you know, if you're in the third circuit, we're, we're going to come after you because we think the third circuit's not going to agree with the uh, sixth in this case. So we don't have that kind of statement. But clearly they're saying they're, they're not yet giving up. They're going to do it. They're going to, you know, they're going to reserve the right to try to get a circuit to break with them. Now, as a practical matter, you do realize that since the tax court has already said that from their perspective, you know, IRS, you got to go through comment and notice period and it's a published decision. Uh, it does put a little crimp in the IRS's ability to do the exams the way they like to, because obviously what's going to happen is a taxpayer who's facing an assessment based on this will file in tax court, not pay the penalty file in tax court. They will win there. And the catch is then it's up to the IRS to decide which circuit, you know, if they're going to take it up to the court of appeals. So at least on paper, they're holding open the option outside the sixth circuit inside the sixth circuit. They're essentially bound by the fact that that is the law there. And the only way they could overcome the sixth circuit rule in the sixth circuit would be to take the Supreme court. And as it might be obvious, if you're going to do that, you could just take this one to the U S Supreme court, or at least try to. I'm not sure the U.S. Supreme court would hear it at this point because there is no split in the circuit. So yeah, they're going to look for that and then try to get the Supreme court to pick it up. Now, what they said though was understanding this and because of the confusion result, because the six are going to have one set of rules, the rest of the country, a different one, at least in theory, Uh, they're going to begin issuing proposed regulations. And they're going to start with the syndicated conservation easement rules that were covered by the uh, tax court. In their case, right? So the tax court case that said since the conservation easement rules are invalid, they are now issued proposed regulations in that area. So those proposed regulations, which were issued last week, uh, effectively tell us that yeah, you know we're going to have these brand new proposed regulations. They're going to put this down as a listed transaction. So they're started. They have now officially started the notice period and the comment period. So notice and comment have started. What'll happen in this case, as we get into this, is proposed regulation 1.6011-9 was issued on November 9th. In the preamble, that reg, they tell us they expect to finalize this in 2023. So, and when they do so, they're warning people that even, let's say you're in the sixth circuit, you know, now they're not enforcing that there, If you decide to file in the interim in the Sixth Circuit and you don't disclose this transaction in a syndicated conservation easement transaction and the regulation goes final, they're reminding you you have a very short time period to file amended returns for all returns you didn't put the notice on uh, and get that in once this would become final. So as a practical matter, this probably doesn't change much of anything. Uh, My guess is they will take this final. My guess is, therefore, it will again become a listed transaction. So, if you actually, if the IRS is already examining you, and they've already tried to assess the penalty, and you know, you you now can go back and say, nope, can't do that, right? We'll see if they want to risk it, taking you to tax court and trying to go to the court, go to the Supreme Court, but you know, probably by the middle of twenty three. We'll be back where we were. So any client hasn't hasn't had an exam, the IRS isn't, you know, hauling them up on this thing. They probably will still have to go back and file that, file the information return. So be aware that may not be that big a thing. Now, let's talk about the impact of these decisions, right? Uh, you do need to note that this particular section is unique. there aren't many sections I can think of where the service is given the ability to actually add things to the list of what apply of what this tax rule applies to. Right. There are a few things out there. Maybe, uh, potentially, you know, we might see that where the IRS starts to decide what goes in five, seven, et cetera, your property, decide to change those tables. I guess that could be covered by it, but a lot of the stuff the IRS issues is not in that realm where they could suddenly set the law. They could set their interpretation of the law. Uh, but if it's interpretive, it, it's safe. So for instance, I've heard people try to claim that, you know, th- th- this would have a huge impact on the notices the IRS issued with regard to the employee retention credit. My theory is no, probably not. I think those, I think those notices, unlike the ones that we have here in 6707 Cap A, they, they read way more like interpretation of ambiguous language in the code. Congress never said in the employee retention tax credits, effectively, the IRS has the right to write, you know, to to basically to add provisions to this or do things of that sort. So, yeah, I, I don't see that as being one of those issues. And secondly, when they do say things like that, it used to always be via regulations and obviously regulations would have notice and comment anyway. So I don't think that's it. I do think that this is a quirky uh, situation, and they spend a lot of time talking about the fact these are legislative regulations. And again, I don't think most of the things you see in IRS notices, announcements, revenue rulings, revenue procedures are interpretive. So, what they end up being, so you understand what that is uh, a notice is effectively the IRS's position with regard to how the law should be properly interpreted. It is subject to review. It's not subject to the same level of review and comment that regulations are. But as a practical matter. It is simply the IRS's argument for the proper treatment. Now, if you can show the error of the IRS's ways, you know, in your when you go to court, then yeah, the court may very well fine for you in that case. So they don't have the level of deference that a regulation tends to have in that regard. But bottom line, even if they did say somehow this should have been issued uh, as a, you know, you know, with notice and comment, and say, oh, well, you can't enforce that. Well, that's fine. Then it just becomes a, you know, a, a legal memorandum or part of their brief regarding why this particular treatment didn't work. So again, we're going to be looking at the validity of the arguments underlying the interpretation. And I don't think this makes a huge difference in those areas, but it does surely make a big difference in the 6707 cap a penalty area because that, that's a case where Congress literally gave the IRS the right to write law. And they're going to have to follow these rules in that regard. Other thing to remember, I've definitely heard promoters now starting to ramp up on some of their syndicated conservation easement structures and say, oh, well, don't worry about them anymore. They work. See, the courts are all for them. No, there's been no ruling on the merits of the case here, right? Uh, You know, we don't, the merits of the transaction are not addressed in these decisions. What's addressed is whether the IRS properly went through the procedures to add them to the list of transaction. So all that really means is they could, you could still lose. You can still get nailed with the taxes, the interest, you can still get nailed with understate, you know, with basically substantial understatement penalties for the years in question on the taxes due. The only thing you can't, the only thing will happen right now is you won't get that 75% penalty, which isn't a small thing, but that's all that would happen at this point. It does not mean those, you know, those things are good. And secondly, you as a tax advisor signing the return, you're at risk. If in fact it doesn't have substantial authority and many of these would be a tax shelter. So we need more likely than not level of support. Uh, you could still be subject to a preparer penalty for going ahead and going along with these. So be aware of that on that site. So these cases tell us nothing about whether these transactions actually work. They just tell us that the IRS has got to follow the law when they decide to add to this list under this special quirk of 6707 Cap A. But it does not say anything about whether these particular transactions are ones that could be properly added, had the IRS gone through a no comment period, or whether these transactions actually might work or not work uh, for purposes under federal tax law. Those are things to be decided later. I will say for conservation easements, we have had a number of cases where it didn't turn out well for the taxpayer. So in that realm, you know, I don't see any of those where you could say go back, oh, with the APA, you know, this, oh, that whole case been decided differently. No, the penalty would have been decided differently but the actual case for the underlying tax law probably wouldn't have been decided any differently than it was. Okay. Uh, And again, it's not clear how many notices would be considered legislative rather than interpretive. And even if a notice is invalidated, you still got to justify your position under the law. Uh, You know, here it's easy because look, if it's not in the listed transaction list, it's not a listed transaction it might be a reportable transaction because that is one that's just measured against certain criteria that the transaction meets. So it could be a reportable transaction, but those penalties aren't as significant, uh, but it can't be listed unless the IRS has added it to the list. And therefore, in this case, if the notice is invalidated saying the notice method you use is not a proper way to add things to this list, well, then no, that transaction is not listed as of right now. So if you're before the court, right this instant, the IRS is going to lose on those penalties. But if it's a notice that's interpreting, let's say like the ones for the employee retention tax credit, then you still got to justify your position based on the law. Even if that notice is invalid, it doesn't mean the IRS can't use that same analysis to argue in court, that that's the proper way to view the uh, law. And we know that's going to be their position. So just be aware with how far you go on this. But it was an interesting case for the week. And actually both of them, I think I'd have a lot more impact than a lot of stuff we've seen the past few weeks. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 12th, 2022 current federal tax developments as always, is brought to you by Kaplan financial education and your state society of CPAs. As always, you can email me Ed Zollers at current tax If you want to have a quick question regarding something we discussed here. Uh, I also will be monitoring to some extent, uh, discussion groups for the Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois and Washington societies of CPAs on their connect sites and Idaho's more generic uh, general purpose. I always say discussion site. So you can find me there. You know, I'll sometimes pop up and answer questions there. Otherwise hope you're having a good week. We are getting to that part of the year. See, I know this part of the month as by next week, you know, which is the week that we get to the following Sunday will be Christmas. Uh, this is when CPAs are finishing up or finished up their CP for the year. I actually do have one course to do for a firm next week, uh, but that that's it. Otherwise, this is the final big push week for CPAs to get their year-end continuing education. And of course, and that, that only gets upended, which has been regularly, if Congress decides to pass a law after you guys have finished your middle of December CPE work cause then we're all back in January trying to figure out the new law. That's all possibility this year. So keep your eyes open for it. But otherwise, uh, hopefully if you're coming out to CCP this week, you're going to see you're going to be in one of the courses I'm doing either in person or online. Uh, you know, hopefully I will, will actually see you there. If you're in person, uh, theoretically see you there if you're online, cause we'll be doing courses this week for Arizona. Uh, I'll be doing some stuff for, um, for a chapter in another state, uh, got a couple of things, going to do a webinar, uh, going to do some more generic stuff for the week, couple of webinars for the week. So yeah, it'll be an interesting week in that realm, but this is my last big CPE week. And then we'll do a few things in January. Got one thing in February and then I'm done, you know, we're back to tax season. So otherwise take care, enjoy yourself. Uh, hopefully you have a good, uh, a good, end of year holiday season getting ready for your tax season but in any event if you're here next week you haven't taken off for the holidays on you know on the 22nd of uh december then or the night i should say yeah the yeah it'll be the 19th i guess of december you don't have taken off by that point we'll see you next week here on current federal tax developments